Um, for all the prayers that we carry in our hearts, um, lots of them unexpressed here. Um, um, we're grateful to be together again. Um, I'm speaking for myself. I hope it's true of other people. Um, that I find a personal strength um, being with everybody that I don't have um, myself. So I'm always glad um, to be together with this group. My own image is that we're all tackling purgatory together. Hell. Um, that we are climbing that mountain. In a week or two we're going to go through Dante's purgatory and one of the claims I'm going to make is um, purgatory should be our life. It's it's an image of our church. It's what we're trying to do here. So these meetings are special for me. So let a blessing be upon all that we're doing. Um, strengthen all of us um, in our efforts to do your will, to give our own wills to yours, to find a courage in our faith, um, to give ourselves to what you're asking to trust. That's risky because it means at some point we have to give up our lives to let go and give ourselves. You never ask us not to do anything, you ask us to keep busy to offer our gifts to the world. Um, but it's different when we offer them through you, with you. So strengthen us in our efforts to do that, please. Watch over Connie and her husband and her mother-in-law um, and their traveling. Um, and I ask a special grace for Julie's son, Ben, who died some time ago. We didn't, we learned that last night. Special grace in Julie. Um, I'll come to it later when we read this poem, but, um, and I'll come to it in a minute, but at least for now, um, help her to let go of her son. It sounds to me like she has. Um, to trust in you, our prayers tonight are with him that you receive him into your kingdom, and if purgatory is still something going on with him, that our prayers help him. But here now, um, let Julie take a strength in our prayers to, to take a joy in you, to trust in you, and, and find an example in her for all of us. We're all going to lose people we love, all of us. Um, it won't be easy for any of us, particularly if it's a child. Um, but um, speaking for myself again, I just it, find a strength in being aware of what everybody's going through, the kind of burdens we all carry. So we are grateful that we find this help in each other. We are grateful for the help that these poets are giving. They're showing us something about you, always. Um, but a great gift to all of us, strengthen us in our efforts to take what we learn and live it, not just keep it in our minds, but live it in all that we do with each other. The crosses that we're asked to bear and the joys that are our hope um, coming from them. So we offer these prayers in your name. Sorry. <laughs> David and Kay's friends. Well, sorry. Suzanne should be here. Um, we offer our prayers for Connie's friend Joe. And I think Connie 
I think we've already included your mother-in-law, but Joe. Yes. And David and Kay for your friend Paul. I, you didn't say anything earlier, but um, both of us hope he's doing well and and that you're doing well, both of you. Um, I'm saying that because none of you make anything of this. You ask for prayers, but I have a feeling that so many of you carry burdens in your heart for the people you love. So, stre strengthen us in our efforts to keep you with us. For Melody and her family, um, her husband, and and all all that she carries in her heart, um, help her um, um, to trust in you, to let go. Help all of us to keep a humor while we face difficulties. That's our hope. The call of the church is to be always and everywhere thankful. Um, most especially when it's hard and we're bearing crosses. So, um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. God. I should have asked, I sh sorry, I should have asked for prayers for Suzanne and me. So if you would include them tonight, um, Emily, our youngest, Jonathan and Emily are having their seventh. They are both out of their minds. Um, this is their seventh. They're not young. Um, I told them two children ago that if they didn't stop, we were moving to Alaska and they've not heard it. <laughs> they're having, Emily's have, they're um, inducing it on, on uh, Friday. But we're having all the, or three of the kids on Wednesday. So from Wednesday to Thursday, we will have three children in our home. Wednesday. Through, through Tuesday. Through a week. So... Um, we would be glad for your prayers for the two of us. If you don't see us on Monday and Tuesday, you'll know why. <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> we're not alive. <laughs> okay, let's start. Let's start. Um, if everybody, if you all, if you all have the poem on my first son, um, actually, I'm going to read another one first, just because it goes to what we're doing. I'm. I want to come back to on my first son. I, I've included these. They're all on the list. I've, um, I'd, what, I'd like to read this poem, Isaac and Archibald, by Robinson. Robinson was a New England poet, beginning of the century. Very dark in, in lots of ways. Um, I think one of his poems, um, Luke Havergal, is, is a prophetic poem. It's dark, a little bit scary. It's powerful. Luke Havergal, it's included in ours. It's, it's a good poem for you guys to read. One of them, which is his most, probably his most anthologized piece, is called um, um, Richard Corey. And it's about a man who takes his life. And part of the power of that poem is it presents this guy um, who has everything in the world. And we don't understand his motives. The, one of the power of that poem is he presents this guy and we don't know the motives for what he did. It's just a, it's a stunning poem. But he wrote this poem called Isaac and Archibald, which is touching and tender and humorous. It's just very, it's very touching. I, I don't know why it came to mind a couple of weeks ago, I think, because Suzanne and I are losing it a lot. But I'd like to do it with you guys, but it's too long to read. 
So I'm asking all of you to, to go online and get that poem, Isaac and Archibald, print it and read it. You don't have to read it in a sitting. You can, you know, you, it's not, it's only 10 pages. You can read it probably in 15 minutes. But it would take a long time to read it online, and I don't want to do that. So if you would please read it. Um, I'm going to go through it and pick out passages um, to read over two weeks. So I'll treat that as our lyric. Um, and you can look at the other poems as well. But take a look at that. Tonight, the, the, the lyric I wanted to start with is Ben Johnson's On My First Son, and I'll come to that in a moment. But because of what we're doing, and one of the points that I want to make tonight has to do with signs, with reading signs, and that's been an important part of the work that we've done. I want to read Hopkins, Gerard Havley Hopkins' poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. We've read it before. I've read it in class. It's included in the list in the Hopkins poems. You can read it. In that poem, Hopkins is saying that everything in the world speaks. That poem couldn't be more contrary to the scientific mind of our day. It's saying that each thing in nature has a voice, a self. St. Thomas would have agreed. St. Thomas would have said the tendency is for us to see things as objects, that tree outside, the flowers that Suzanne plants or arranges in the house, those are things. But each thing is a subject in its own right. Each thing has a self. We're far more conscious of it because we have a consciousness. So we have a self. We can relate to that. But it also makes it easier for us to look at things and without being aware, sufficiently aware, that each thing has a self. Um, I, I, I think that's particularly true in a scientific age because in science we tend to deal with math, mathematics and abstractions in probabilities. We distance ourselves from things. We see them in terms of an abstraction, a mathematical probability, say. But it, concretely, each thing speaks. That's what Hopkins is saying. And I'd like you all to hold on to that idea when we go through Hop or I mean Dante tonight because I just think it it helps us to see that something else was going on in the Middle Ages, in the Christian Middle Ages, that's very, very different from our modern scientific world. Okay. So this is Hopkins as Kingfishers Catch Fire. Okay, he's saying everything speaks. And what they're speaking is themselves and their creator. Thomas would have agreed to him. Thomas would have found signs of the Trinity. It's too deep to go into, but he would have found three things. Um, order and form. Those three qualities, and they're too difficult to go into, those three qualities are present in everything in creation, or a thing couldn't be. So there are these three things, and each of them goes back to the Trinity. So from Thomas's perspective, each thing in creation reflects the Trinity. Okay? Hopkins is saying each thing is speaking itself, whatever it is, a bell, a, a, a dragonfly, a fish, whatever it is, a stone going down a well. Each thing speaks, and each thing speaks its creator. Okay, hold on to that. Hopkins is Kingfisher's Catch Fire. 
As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swings fine tongue to fling out broad its name. <laughs> you know, we use that word, the tongue of a, of a bell, without meaning that, but Hopkins is playing on it as if a bell is speaking, using its tongue to speak. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, sells, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God I, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. So everything, everything is created to express itself, its own being. And in one sense it's expressing Christ so that we find Christ everywhere. Okay. I'll just hold on to that. It's, I'm going to come back to that later, but I just wanted everybody to be reminded of that poem. It's been a while since everybody's heard it. The poem I wanted to read tonight is on my first son. Okay. Um, it's written by Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson was a Renaissance poet. He lived the time of Shakespeare and Milton and Dunn, John Dunn, figures like that. The Renaissance was an important time because it was a time of renewal when Aristotle had reached um, the Islamic peoples and the West and there was this sudden reawakening of learning. These, um, um, what do you call them, these schools of thought um, sprung up and began discussing these ideas and out of them, particularly in Italy, that's where we are in Dante. This is exactly where we are. Out of them emerged this new sense of man, and I'll wait on it. I'll, 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 I'll pick it up in my review of Dante just to make it clear. But out of that Renaissance, this Renaissance means a renewal, a rebirth, came um, a new understanding of man, who we are, what our potential is, and of language, how important language was for helping us to frame things to see them because seeing them once we saw them with our minds we could act differently so it was this great reawakening of music of the arts of painting michelangelo all the great poets ben johnson was in that school one of the things that made johnson different from these others is he was writing in what was then called the plain style the plain english the style that was coming from italy from dante and others petrarch was ornate, and in some ways to the English, it was effeminate, too stylish, too delicate. Ben Johnson was English and was very proud of being an Englishman and, and tried to write very simply and plainly. So both of those schools of thought, the more Italianate, the more ornate, and the plain, the plain English, came together and produced this great outpouring of literature, poetry in the Renaissance, Shakespeare, Milton, John Donne, 
Um, ben, um, ben Johnson was one of them. This is one of Johnson's poems, probably his most famous, and I have loved it forever. We've been doing Aeschylus's um, Oresteia, and it's, it's centered on the father, the role of the father. And I thought I would do this poem um, because it, it presents a very, very different view of the father from the one we get in Aeschylus. But I also thought it was appropriate because you know, from reading Dante, that Dante looks at Virgil as his father. He calls him father, teacher, master, constantly. Um, Virgil is his guide. A father is a guide to a son. Um, in our age, sadly for me, we've lost a sense of fatherhood. The Protestant world took it away. The, the role of the father, the authority of the father is so badly undermined in our time. And science took it away. According to science, you've got just two sexes copulating. I mean, there's no way they can get to matters of authority. The Catholic Church is one of the, probably the only institution on, in, on the earth that still makes a place for fatherhood, both in the ceremonies but also in its structure. The Pope, the word Pope, comes from Papa, Father. Priests are called fathers. Ministers are not. So fatherhood is deeply a part of our Catholic faith, but it's, it's lost. If you, if you watch movies at all or TV programs, you'll know that any movies dealing with fathers typically, generally, show fathers as being stupid, just buffoons. Or tyrannical. Or, um, or tyrants, oppressive. I mean, fathers in their authority either bad or dumb. But we don't have a sense of something special in fatherhood, and yet um, the whole line leading to Christ goes through the father's line. Abraham, Father Abraham, Jacob, David, Christ. And when Christ came, he came um, to do his father's will. That whole notion has been lost in America. America's an anti-Catholic country. The Catholics are set apart. There's lots of things that set us apart. This is one of them. Okay. So this is Ben Johnson um, on the occasion of having lost his son as a father. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to um, read it twice. I'm going to comment on it and then I'm going to read it and let it go. He's, he's responding to the loss of his son aware that at his loss he was given something for a time. Wasn't under his control. I mean, I mean, whatever control we can exercise on our kids, we do exercise some control. We tell our kids to knock it off and <laughs> we hope they'll listen to us. Um, but he was lent to him for a time. And when death came, he was giving the gift that he received, this loan, back. Because it wasn't his. It was a gift from God. The part of the beauty of the poem for me rests in the spirit of what I would call um, chastisement. That he realizes when he loses his child that it was never his. And he's chastised. And he's learned something from the death of his son. So what makes this poem unique, I mean lots of poems mourn the death of loved ones. You, know, you, you don't have to look far in poetry to find poems that deal with death, lots of them do. What's special about this is it's a father losing his son 
mourning it, but in a spirit of having learned something from it, okay? That it was a gift from God, it wasn't his, and he hopes that he will learn to love better from having lost his son, okay? So on my first son, Ben Johnson. Farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, love boy. Seven years thou wert lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by the fate on the just day. O could I lose our father now, for why will man lament the state he should envy? To have so soon scaped worlds and flesh's rage, and of no other misery, yet age. Rest in soft peace, and asked, say, Here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such, as what he loves may never like too much. It's a warning against being too possessive, you know, holding on. The beauty of it is that he loves his son, um, but it's as if he's been chastised to say he's learned. Um, it, it's a rare, rare poem. Um, the sense of justice of being given something, paying back. Um, I asked Julie about this. Um, she wrote me a... We, 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 we meet at St. Francis on Monday night and Julie's there and I read this poem. She wrote a touching, tender note. She lost her son some time ago, and I didn't know that, and we prayed, actually we just prayed for him here, and um, he's going to be included in our prayers. But her comment, bless her soul, the courage that she had was to say, when she heard the poem, I'm not going to get her words right, I'm sorry, Julie, but it's as if she learned that she'd been holding on too tightly, and hearing Johnson's poem helped her let him go. I thought, what a great grace for her, for us. You know, that I've been saying this all along, that we're not just meant to hear poetry, we're meant to live it. That the great thing about poetry is it helps us to see things we don't see and also feel things we don't feel because so often our feelings are not reliable. They get in the way. Poets help us to order our feelings you know, according to a, a deeper sight. So I was so touched by your your words, Julie. Bless that brave, humble heart of yours. Anyway, I was um, grateful um, um, for her reading of it. And know you've got her prayers, okay? I'm going to read it once more with no comment. On my first son. Farewell, thou child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, love boy. Seven years thou were lent to me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Oh, how could I lose all father now? For why will man lament the state he should envy? To have so soon escaped the world's and flesh's rage for him to be gone of this veil of tears that we live in should be a blessing. We should be glad. To have so soon escaped the world's and flesh's rage and if no other misery, yet age, he didn't have to face that. Rest in soft peace and asked, say, 
Here doth lie Ben Jonson his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such, as what he loves may never like too much. Part of the beauty of this is that Ben Jonson was a poet. He loved poetry, obviously. And the best thing that he could have done is created this child and helped him to become, you know, whatever he's going to be. Um, and give him back to God. Let him go to God. Anyway, that's our lyrics for tonight. Any, any comments or responses or before we start in Dante? Okay, let's let's start Dante. Um, two things I'd like everybody to keep in mind tonight as a as a backdrop. There will be others coming, but two major things. Um, one is this whole notion of signs. Um, if you got my, I'm sorry about the confusion in the notes. I sent you notes and then asked you to tear them up and sent you another one. I I shortened them and tried to simplify them. You know from our talk last week that Dante uses what we know as, as an allegorical method. If you've got the sheet in front of you, you know that everything that happens is literally true. We're present to each other right now. You know, we're talking to each other, we're online, we're reading Dante. Everybody's just heard Ben Jonson's poem. That's, that's an actual fact. But according to that way of reading, which was the way typical up to the modern scientific mindset, each thing um, also had other levels of meaning. St. Thomas said this, and this is the principle that I'd like every... Uh-oh. Did, did I... I just blank... Oh, did everybody here? Just went blank for a second. Um... St. Thomas said this at the very beginning of the Summa Theologica. He said, um, every word signifies something. So the word tree refers to trees. Yeah? An oak tree refers to an oak. Butterfly, bathroom, wine, whatever word we use has a signification. It signifies something. It points towards something. Yeah? Michael's sitting on that colorful couch. Melody's looking pensive the way she so often looks. She just blessed that soul. So words signify something. It helps us relate to the world. We can see it more clearly. You know, the fact that I said Melody's you know, looking, I mean, suddenly it's, you know, it comes focus, and I'm glad she's not getting too self-conscious. Words signify, okay? But he also said the strange thing is that things themselves signify, and most people don't see that. I'm going to say that again. Things signify. According to Thomas, everything signifies its creator. So everything in creation reveals its creator. Now let me go back again. Words signify. They point to things, yeah? A tree signifies a tree. Um, a hutch behind Bob and Carol. There's a hutch there. A word refers to, I mean, Karen, yeah. Um, words signify things. But St. Thomas says things also have a signification. They signify, they point to things. And in that case, they point to God. They reveal their creator. Now the question is, do we have eyes to see 
the significance of things. Do we have eyes? I mean, one of the things we've been doing together, the poem I just read, Kingfisher's Catch Fire. Remember the wind hover, all the poems we've read. Every poet that we've read is referring to something that in some ways refers to Christ. Hopkins' Kingfisher's is one of the best poems in, to do that that I know of. He's describing this wind hover flying through the dawn morning sky, and he sees in it an image of Christ. Most people are going to look up and see a bird. That's all they're going to see. Um, the poem that I read called Supernatural Love, remember, was of the mother describing herself as a girl when she was four years old, and she pricked her finger. And we saw that what was happening in that moment was that she was actually participating in the crucifixion. So the poets are helping us to see that what goes on in the world, the events of the world, signify something more. Things signify something. Okay? That's the basis of everything we're doing. Do we, do we look at things in the world and find Christ? Or are they just these dull things? Or mathematical abstractions in the scientific world? That's the first point. It's just, that's a principle that we've, we've gone over numerous times. Just hold on to it to our, for our work in Dante. The second is this, and it's really crucial right now because of the work we're doing in Dante's Inferno. Freud is treated like he's a great, what's the word, original creator. That's not the word I'm looking for, but it's as if he's this original creator, the one who discovered the unconscious um, and gave it a scientific cast. According to Freud, so much of what we do is motivated by our unconscious. Okay, And according to him, the unconscious itself um, has a deterministic form. This is absolutely crucial to our work. He's a scientist and he's claiming a scientific knowledge for what he's saying. Jung disagreed with him. So do I. I mean, I, I just think what Freud says is nonsense, the greater part of it. I know that's got to be sound, probably got to sound shocking to you guys. Freud is claiming a scientific knowledge. Science has to do with those things that cannot be other than they are. Deals with necessity, determinisms. It can't be other than it is. It's, it is. It's determined. It's a fact. And a, according to the modern scientific world, the, the basis of those determinisms are matter. The matter, the materialism of things, takes certain forms. They can't be other than they are. They, we call them laws. So science is attempting to discover those laws and make them available to us. According to Freud, what's behind human actions is what goes on in the unconscious, those things we don't see. And the driving forces of that unconscious are, for him, the edible complex and these, what he calls polymorphous polymorphous perverse instincts. The Oedipus complex is that every human being, particularly men, but both men and women, have an Oedipus complex. They want to they want to kill the father, get rid of the father, and sleep with the mother. And we've got all these polymorphous perverse sexual instincts. We want to play out these instincts in every, whatever form we've got. According to him, those are determined. We cannot escape them. They're determinism. They're in our nature. 
And the whole, the whole effort of therapy is to unmask those things, to bring them out in the open, so that we can see them and then begin to do something with them. And it isn't clear to me you know, what, what you can do if they're determined, but that was his theory. So all of the things that we do, repression, avoidance, compensation, all those technical terms refer to tax that we take to disguise that fact, to cover it up, that we really want to kill our father, defy him, and sleep with our mother and carry those things on perversely in our lives. We make accommodations to those because of our social connections with people. We repress them, we do what we can, but that's what drives us. So we're caught between these private instincts and our having to get along in a, in a culture. That's n probably not a very fair presentation of Freud, but I, it's, it, for me it's enough for my purposes right now. That's Freud's treatment of the unconscious. That's Freud's, and I mean it's a way too simplified version of it, but that's Freud believed we did not have any free will. He was quite clear on that. I'm not exaggerating. He believed we have no free will. We were motivated by these determinisms. He presented his, his theories as scientific because they were based on things that couldn't be other than they are. And that's why they had such a hold on the modern consciousness. Okay. Here's the point I want to make. Freud got his theories of the unconscious from poets his theory about the Oedipal complex comes from Sophocles. We're going we're to do him right after we do Dante. I'm going to go back to do Aeschylus and Sophocles. He got it from Sophocles. Um, he got it from the poets. The poets are the ones who knew the unconscious thousands of years ago, long before modern scientists, long before. They're the ones who first open it to us. Dante is probably the one who's explored it more fully in the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. We, I mean, we're, that's where we are. We're going into this subconscious world to see this. The point I want to make here is this, and it's absolutely crucial to what we're doing. When we enter into Dante's Inferno, we're looking at, the, according to Dante, we are looking at the worst things in our human nature, our sins that are buried, hidden, obscure. We can't see them very well. According to Dante, we can't climb that mountain. We can't get to God without seeing our sins and doing something about them. If we can see them, we can do something about them. Okay. Now the difference is this, and this is crucial. Freud's theories were based on what we can call a somatic unconscious. An unconscious that's rooted in the body, somatic, the body, the physical, or anim you can call it the animal unconscious. Because Freud believed the terms of that were in matter, in our physical nature. We couldn't escape it. That's why he could claim a scientific status for it. Okay. Because that's so, Freud had no understanding of the spiritual unconscious. And this is the point I want to underscore and why I'm taking time with this. Dante makes clear there's this dark unconscious to man, that there are 
in the depths of his being, he carries these sins, and they act out. He's a thousand years before Freud, practically. And he saw this stuff. Um, uh-oh, are you there? Yeah. But here's what Dante sees that Freud doesn't. I mean, I, I don't think Freud is accurate anyway, but I think Dante is. And I, and I want to come back to this um, signs and why what Dante's doing is actually more, more scientific than Freud. I want to come back to that, so hold on to that. The thing that Freud didn't see is the spiritual unconscious, and here's what's crucial to see. Dante's in hell because Mary saw his plight, went to Lucia, she went to Beatrice, Beatrice went to Virgil, and Virgil came to Dante. So there's a whole element of effulgent, divine, inexpressible light, a mystery, that's put into action on Dante's behalf. Virgil is the one who comes to get him because he's the one most close, the closest to the natural order. But behind Virgil is Beatrice, Lucia, Mary, finally gone. So hidden in the Divine Comedy is this divine action. A whole divine order is put into motion for Dante's sake. What Dante's showing us is that's true for every single one of us. So when things are bad, we're, it's at that point we're called on to exercise our faith because faith means holding on to something when you have no reason for doing it. Hope means having hope when you have no reason to hope. Those are supernatural virtues. They're not natural. All of this is going on and Dante doesn't see it, but we do. So the point I want to make here is that what's going on is that there is this supernatural light entering the world and it's present in Dante. So when Dante goes through the Commedia, it's funny I mean, it's frightening, but it's not tragic. We are not in a tragic world. The title of his poem is The Divine Comedy. It's Dante's presence that makes everything funny. He faints, he passes out, he feels pity when he shouldn't, he can't get a hold of himself. Every time he steps in a boat, the boat sinks because he's got a body. When he walks on the bridge, the rocks crumble. I mean, everything he's doing makes us aware that he doesn't belong there. He's showing us something, and all the souls are shocked that he's around. So there's this comic irony always at work when we're facing these horrors. Now, turn it around for a second. Does anybody in, look at it this way, does anybody in hell see the comedy of this? From their perspective. Absolutely not, because we know. Remember the, the the sign over the you know all all you've entered, you know you've lost hope. You've lost hope. This is the place for those who have lost the good of the intellect. That's the principle of hell. Those who have lost the good of the intellect. They don't know that they don't know. So. Get out of our view for a minute. Step away from the narrative, you know, that we have through Dante. Put yourselves in the in the in the position of any one of those sitters. Do they see anything funny going on? Not at all. There's no way they can. They're caught. They're trapped 
and whatever you want to call them, denials, obdurateness, stubbornness, a refuse, a ref, what it really is is a refusal of God's mercy. They want law, they've got it. They didn't want mercy. They're stubborn and proud. They wanted to have the world the way they've got it. That's what they've got. Except we see it from Dante's point of view. What we're seeing is that hell is not tragic, it's comic, because the people there are stupid. So Dante's making us laugh. I mean, as frightening as it is, we're standing in a very different way. So two of the most important things I want everybody to hold on to is this notion of signs, that things mean something. When we go through the inferno, everything means. The contrapasso, the atmosphere, the clothes, the gestures, the punishments, the words that they speak, everything that goes on reveals the sin. When we get to purgatory, the same thing is going to happen, except it's going to be revealing God's law and mercy both working. In hell, all you see is God's law. In the purgatory, we're going to see God's law and mercy. And everything that goes on, the signs will reflect that reconciliation between the mercy that God's offering and the efforts that human beings are taking to do penance for what they're doing, to work with God's mercy, to cooperate with Him, and become better. Everything that goes on, signs, gesture, language, atmosphere, all of it will, will tell that, each according to its own level. And the same thing will happen in heaven, in the, in the paradise. At each, at each level, we're going to be learning something about the nature, our nature, the nature of our world, the different orders of things. Um, here we're learning about the different kinds of sins and their effects on human beings. So in one sense, Dante is far more scientific than Freud in this sense. Scientists work from effects to causes. We know that. You go to a doctor and you say, this is what I've got. He looks at those symptoms, those effects, and he reasons back to causes. And you know that some doctors are better at doing it than others. You've got ten people coming in with the same symptoms. Nine doctors are going to see the same thing. One doctor will see that it included in those symptoms are other symptoms, and he'll say, no, I, you know, I think this may be the case. So doctors are only as good as they read. But all of them are going from effects to causes. These are the effects. This is what I see. This must be the cause. Dante's looking at the effects of sin, what sin does, and going back to its causes. But he's placing it in final end so that we see this is what will become of us if this is what we keep doing. Dante's being given a help. We'll learn later that he's damned. Right now he's being helped to see the worst things about himself that he doesn't see. In purgatory he's going to see how to, you know, the help he'd be given and the paradiso of forgiveness. But the, but the, the rationality, the sources of rationality are the same. He's looking at things and reasoning from effects to causes and helping us to see more clearly what the nature of those things are. Sins, mercy, forgiveness. So that's, those are sort of basic to everything we're doing, okay? So let me, st and let me stop, and I want to just quickly re 
view the structure, and then I want to look at some passages tonight. But let me stop. Any, any questions? Connie, what's on that mind of yours? I know you've got to have a question. Uh, well, well, not a question, but, I, but in, in, um, do you really think this is what hell is? Of course, nobody knows, but um, pretty much in, in what the church teaches, is this kind of in the same line of what what we're reading as far as what hell is really like, perhaps? Or I mean, I know we don't know. You know, I, that's such a good question. Here, here, I'm a little bit nervous about saying this, but I'm going to say it. <coughs> what we know is our nature. That's an actually really good question. <clears throat> what we know is our nature. God made us in His image, right? We have intellects and we have wills. A tree doesn't. A dog doesn't. A flower doesn't. We have intellects and wills. We know God does. We also know that God gave us free will. It's in those two ways that we're like God. We have intellects and free will. Yeah, that's our belief. We have the support of that belief in our understanding of our own nature from our own actions. And I just put my hand on the desk. That was a free act. Just, you know, when you step forward to take that mic a minute ago, you did that freely. Um, nobody forced you to do it. You didn't have to answer my question. Um, so we know our nature. We can know things about our nature. If we know that, and we know that lust, or greed, or avarice, you know, or gluttony, if those are sins, they're all sins of excess, that they take very natural things like love or emotions, and we can do bad things with them. And we know the bad because we experience their effects. So we can say an awful lot about ourselves, about our nature, the nature of sin. We also know the effects. We know this from our faith, from the gifts of the Holy Spirit, let's say. That when we struggle to turn to God and ask for help, seriously, we can receive help. It's like turning to a doctor for, to a doctor for help. Yeah, doctor will give us medication. God gives us graces to answer our sins. And we know that because if we... And I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm, I'm going to speak for myself. I think I'm fairly representative here. That I know when I look back at my own sins when I was 20. I mean, I look back in humiliation right now. I mean, I didn't know these things when I was a kid. I, I wasn't raised with this. It wasn't a part of our background. You know that Suzanne and I are both converts. When I look back at our early beginnings and think about what we've been given in our faith, it just stuns me. It just stuns me. You know, we 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 seriously pray. We seriously try to work on our sins. Those are things we do. And I think it's left with the sense that we're not the same people where we were 30 years ago. There's a change. That's not the effect of medicine, physical. You know, the medicine a doctor can give. It's the it's something from God. But they all answer our nature. If I was too given to doing something, then I hope I'm a little bit better at not doing that now. So if we look at ourselves as our nature, we can say that the effect of, sin, of lust is this. The effect of greed is the effect of avarice. You know, 
gluttony, whatever the sin is, the effect of fraud, of using our mind in the wrong way, that this is what happens when we do that. If, we, if we're, I, I, you know that I've already said this, I look at Dante, Dante as a doctor, he's, he's, he's so clear on showing us the nature of lust or gluttony or avarice or, you know, whatever it is, fraud. And if that's true, then it seems to me that's a pretty clear indication of something along the lines of what hell has to be. That, that we made these choices, we take them to the next life, and they become the sources of punishment for us. It's not some god who's mean or, you know, it's us making a choice, wanting those things more than God, when those things have a certain effect on us. So, in that sense, it seems to me, I mean, we, we know that this is a poetic... Somebody's phone is on. Here, I'm going to mute you guys. You guys mute, unmute you if you... Um, um, we know that, insofar as that's true, hell has got to be something like that. That we're getting what we chose. What, what we took into the afterlife is what we have. That's what we wanted. That's what we've got. So in that sense, I think the church, that's why Pope, ben, or, uh, Pope Francis asked the whole church to read Dante a couple of years ago. What he was saying is, read Dante, learn about your faith. Because Dante had this, I think largely because of St. Thomas. He read St. Thomas really well. He had this profound grasp of our human nature that I don't think we have today. You know, um, but one of the things I just did ten minutes ago was try to answer Freud. You know, the modern world was raised on Freud. That makes me sad. I think I think there's some truth to what Freud saw, but I think, by and large, Freud missed a lot and he misrepresented a lot, and yet everybody believed him, or lots of people believed him. He denies free will. He he makes everything dark. He does. He has no notion of a spiritual unconscious. And one of the things Dante is showing is that he's so realistic in his treatment of sin, and yet he's absolutely clear that there's a grace going on. Dante's Dante's only there learning with the help of a grace. I hope I hope I've emphasized that. I'm just afraid I haven't enough. He's bringing a light, or he couldn't do that. My own belief right now is that what we're doing together, I mean, I hope you don't think I'm exaggerating, and that what we're doing is a grace. What Julie did last night blew me away. It just blew me away. God, blew me away that she could have said that. God, read a poem and suddenly feel like you should have let go of your son and you realize just now that moment was a moment of letting go. God. So hell is not just a fiction. I mean, it is, you know, for Dante. But I think we're supposed to see there's some truth for us to learn. And insofar as we stand towards that work, the way Dante does to Virgil in hell, we're learning something ourselves. A grace is going on. We're learning. We're learning to see. We're learning to feel. Something's being given. Because hell is... that condition that we, we create 
by what we do with our sins when we don't want God's help. And that's what we've got. Something like that. Anybody else? Connie's going to keep pretending that she doesn't have any questions, and then she does what she just did five minutes ago. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody? Okay. Nobody else? Let's, let's start. Um, um, remember that what's happening in the Commedia is the result of this conflict between church and state. Tina, did you have something? Your audio is not on. Can you turn your audio on? I was just wondering, like, you know, when I read the poems or some of the stuff in Dante, I don't see uh, the meaning in it or, you know, like that. I right. think it's hard for me. Not always, but a lot of the time, especially the poems, I, I have a hard time understanding the things it's trying to say. Yep. Tina, all I can say is... Um, Join the crowd. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not kidding. I mean, I you know you you've heard me laugh at this before. When I I've told you the story, it's so real to me. You know, I didn't grow up with this. It was not a part of my education. I did not read. I did not write. I played basketball. It saved me. I flunked out of college my first year. Um, when I went back, I became an English major. And I remember when I transferred to UC Berkeley. It's when I met Suzanne when we first met. And I took an English course. It was it was a required course for an English major. It was a course in literary criticism, and we had a section on poetry. And I, so I'd gone. I know that you know. I know that lots of kids had it. You know, they were better students than I was in high school. I just I I know we had poetry. I I don't remember it. I I don't recall it. It just my. It was because of our circumstances, you know, in, in my upbringing that so much of that is a blank for me. But. But I remember going to college and, and having this poetry section as a part of the lit crit course that was required for the English major. And I, I was stunned. I just was stunned. I went to the teacher and it was, it, I said, it's like reading Latin. I don't, this is a poem. What? I mean, I really was dumbfounded, puzzled. And I'll never, I'll never forget his response. He said, Poetry is made up of words that form sentences that make statements about human experience. And I, it's like he just blew away you know, this dark cloud and, and at least put it within reach because it made it seem as if it was something I could do because I didn't have a background in it. And I fell in love with it. And you know, I've been spending my life. Um, I don't have any, I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that most of you read these things for the first time and, you know, and shake your head and go, what the hell's going on here, and what, you know, but that's, I mean, that's part of why we're doing this, to learn, to see that there's more there. I would be so grateful if we all came out of this with a, with a strength and sense of wonder, that we're more able to stand in wonder and ask questions about the world, knowing that we don't know, because so many people go through the world acting as if they do know, when they don't, so you shouldn't feel surprised or 
I, honestly, I believe that that's the condition of learning. And you're exactly where you should be. You're, you're here every week. You're learning. You're reading. I would hope that you would be able to say, you know, after we've been together for a year, I see some things now that I didn't see before. But I do. Um, Especially in this book, I really do. <laughs> yeah. Dante's not easy. He, you know, when at UD, at University of Dallas, they always put Milton and Dante together. Milton's language is almost unintelligible. It is very, very difficult to read. It's so complex. But his vision is black and white. It's, it's just absolutely simple. Dante's language is so simple to read. The reality that he's referring to is so deep and rich and complicated. He's just not easy to understand. Because he's, there's such a richness to God's world. You know that he sees so. Dante and Shakespeare are probably the two richest writers you could ever read. What what they see, other men didn't see. So. Okay. Um, so, these burger republics grew out of this tension, and it created these. Um, new polities, these new cities. Um, the Divine Comedy is a product of, and I just want to reinforce the point I've said before. I've been claiming that this work is prophetic because <clears throat> it's Dante's treatment of the of the commercial republic when it comes into existence in the modern form. So everything that he's showing has a prophetic quality. <coughs> he's showing us things about ourselves that are as true today as they were, what is this, 20, 13, 1400, 700 years ago? <coughs> We've talked about the method that every literal event has multiple meetings. I don't think we're supposed to go through every scene and figure them out. I just don't think that's what we're supposed to do. But it's important to be aware that there are always deeper meanings, that what Dante takes are those things that we do in the natural order, like eat too much or drink too much or kill somebody or cheat somebody. But he's putting them in final ends, in hell, so that we can see the effects of them more starkly. So we're learning to see more clearly the effects of our actions. And it's through that allegorical method that he can do that. Um, Um, I want to just briefly recall the scheme um, and um, straighten out a confusion. Um, I think it was mine doing. I think Suzanne straightened it out last week for everybody, but in case there's any con confusion, I want to just be really clear. Remember that when, when Dante begins, he's going up a mountain. He wants to get back to God. It's like a moment when the immortality of the soul awakens. There's this longing for immortality to to get past death. Our souls are immortal. We don't, we don't want to just leave it at, at death. It's that moment when that happens. He longs for God. He wants to go up, but he can't do it alone. And you know that it's at that point that Virgil's sent to him. And Virgil says, you have to go down. You cannot go up until you go down. You have to look at these things that are in the way in you. You have to understand them. Um, and it's crucial to see God, 
That's a grace. The closer we get to God, the more obvious our sins are going to become. I hope that's clear. Baron, Bishop Barron has this wonderful image that he took from some ancient painter, I think. It's one of the fathers. So when you're moving towards the light and you look at a window and you look towards the light, you, you may get a glimpse of the dust on the window, you know. But the closer you get to the light, the more those darks appear, those spots. So the closer you get to Christ, the more obvious your sins become. I, so I've said this before, I just want to repeat it. We can look at our own sins and despair because they can overwhelm us. But that means there's we're looking at them too much through our own pride. Our pride's in the way. The other way to look at our sins is that there, a grace is being given to us to help us. And the fact that we're seeing them is a grace. It's a cross. It's a shared cross with Christ and a grace. We're learning and moving closer to Him. So... Virgil says you have to go down, and they go down. Outside, on the other side of the sticks, is the vestibule. I hope, I hope this, I think she straightened it out last week, Melody, but I, I want to just be sure. On the outside of the sticks are all those people who don't choose. They're rejected by God and rejected by hell, so they're on the other side of the river. But once they cross the river and enter hell proper, remember Dante passes out because symbolically that represents that moment when we first commit sin and we're never aware of it as children the first sin we commit we're never aware we're just whatever it is Dante passes out when he wakes up he's in the first circle of the virtuous pagans and the unbaptized I want to read that sorry doc um I hope I've got this right um Yeah. Um, when he enters the world, um, he enters the world of the of the unbaptized and the um, and the pagans. Um, the whole point of that, and Dante's going to deal with it later. So it, I've asked if everybody just wait on it because I I know it's a huge concern. Um, um, the whole point of that is the natural man cannot attain heaven on his own. That's why the unbaptized are there. It's another way of signifying that the natural man cannot enter heaven. Um, Dante will pick up the question of the unbaptized later, but I, I think the important thing here is that um, it's just that natural or they're not punished for sins that just it's the natural man um, I can't find the passage but on page 19 it, it you know when it describes him about to cross after I'd recognized some of them I saw and knew the shade of him who through cowardice made the great refusal. And once I understood and was certain 
that this was the sect of the wicked displeasing both God and to his enemies. These wretches who never really lived were naked and stung constantly by hornets and wasps. These made their faces stream with blood, which mixed with tears was consumed by loathsome maggots. You know, they cross the, um, the river then, and they enter the world of sin, and it's there that he sees the unbaptized and everybody else. That's the world of the natural man, and the natural man by himself cannot um, enter heaven. Um, but at that point, what I, what I, the point I wanted to make, and just to get clear, remember, here are the circles we've looked at. The virtuous pagans, the very first level, the second, the lustful, the third, the gluttonous, the fourth, the avaricious. Remember, the gluttons were trapped in marsh with rain around them. The lustful were um, buffeted about by winds. The avaricious and prodigal were two groups forming lines, storming each other, because they represent two opposite sins, being too niggardly, too miserly, too ready to spend and waste, punishing each other. The angry and the sullen in the next, remember that's where he um, saw um, Filippo and Filippo, and he pushed him down, and that's that moment when um, Virgil says, blessed are you, um, it's, it's like a moment of, we recognize that Dante's turning because he just doesn't respond in pity to what's going on. In the sixth circle, he comes to the heretics. In the seventh circle, he comes to the center, the middle section. So the first, um, the first five circles um, make up the level of the incontinent, those who commit their sins in weakness. When they come to the sixth circle, they come to the heretics, which def- the wall of Dece itself. In the seventh circle, they come to the violent. And the violent is made up of three circles. Um, the violent against um, um, their neighbors, the violent against self, and the violent against God and nature. Now hold on, just to be clear. So the first five circles make up the incontinent. That's the leopard that Dante met. Um, seven consists of three circles, the violence against others, oneself, and God. That's the lion. That's the nobler sin. It's more given to anger because there's a greater nobility. Tonight we're going to look at circles eight. I don't think we'll get to nine, but we'll, look at, we'll finish up seven and eight. But circles eight and nine, the last two circles, are the fraudulent. So the incontinent, the violent, and the fraudulent. The fraudulent have two sections. Fraud simple, fraud complex. I'm going to say that again. You should all have this on my notes if you've, if you've got the study guide. First five circles, the incontinent, the middle, the violent, the deepest. These are the worst sins, the sins of fraudulent. Man using his mind in the worst possible way. And there are two forms of fraud. In circle eight, there are ten malbolges, evil trenches, these ditches, these evil trenches. There's ten different kinds of um, general acts of fraud. In circle nine, there are four levels. That fraud is different in this way. In, in circle eight, fraud simple, 
It's sins that are general and dispersed. The kind of general sins that affect everybody. In circle nine, it's fraud complex. Those are sins against that involve a special trust. So they're going to go immediately to one's family and one's Lord. So the deepest sins of, of fraud, the abuse of the intellect, will involve the family and greater trusts. Is that clear? So fraud, simple or just general acts of fraud, they're, they're a little bit impersonal. The deeper acts of fraud involve the betrayal of personal trust. They're more likely to occur in a marriage, in a family involving lords. So that's where we're going. That's the structure of hell. So if you look at hell as a whole, you're watching this, a descent from those sins that are much lighter to those that are more violent and aggressive to those that are darker and harder to see. Next week when we start, when we start, I'm going to look at the guardians, every one of the levels, because every one of the guardians will give away a level. And you'll see, um, you'll see the guardians image the sin and watch how the descent gets darker and darker. When you look at the guardians of upper hell, they're all these ancient mythic figures like Minos or the Minotaur, or you know, they're all these ancient figures. We've been watching them. Cerebus or, you know, Pluto or when we get to the lower levels of fraud, the guardians are all demons. That's why Virgil and Dante keep running into demons, because the spiritual sins are deeper. So we're, we're moving towards um, sins that are lighter, towards those are, that are more sinister, and in some ways more demonic. Closer to Satan. Okay? Let me stop. Any questions about any of that? Anybody losing sleep on Dante? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Melody, I don't know if this will be any consolation when Suzanne and I were talking at dinner tonight. Um, there are times when I don't sleep any. I don't sleep well. I've not for years. I've not slept well. But Suzanne's a pretty sound sleeper. But sometimes she doesn't sleep well. And anyway, at night or at dinner, then I asked her what was going on, and she said, "I think I'm going to have. I hope I'm not going to make my wife angry, upset with me here." She said, um, "I'm going to have to rethink my examination of conscious conscience." And, and I, she's she's usually she she usually drops off to sleep right away, and I'm left there awake, doing something. But last night I gather she was going to sleep and doing an examination of conscience, and it got darker and darker and darker and darker, and she she could not go to sleep. <laughs> I told her what I was telling you guys earlier. I said, "See it as a grace, you know. Don't forget that that somewhere there's a, or you couldn't be looking at these things so." Anyway, I did the same thing, and uh, I was awake at like 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> could not get back to sleep, and my mind was just racing with all these horrible images, and it's like, <laughs> I have got to quit reading this book. <laughs> I need to get to purgatory. No, I get it. I totally get it. Oh, my God. Doc, what do you... 
Is that Melody? No, speak, yeah, it is. Melody, I'm going to look up your number, and at 4.30 next time, I'm going to call you. <laughs> we'll talk about good things. Is yes. that what you're saying? We'll yeah. talk about good stuff? Good. <laughs> what is my... <laughs> Does your screen keep going blank? Mine goes blank every once in a while. No, it doesn't? Okay. So you're okay getting a call at 4.30 in the morning, are you? <laughs> She's got two thumbs up. <laughs> mm. If that happens, I'm going to go open a bottle of wine, and Suzanne and I are going to have a glass of wine at 4.30 in the morning. Okay, let's, let's do some readings here. Let's get back in the book. Um, I'd like to just do some readings to flesh out some of these things. Um, at, actually, I've got one question because I'm afraid we'll miss it if I don't do it. If you look at the order of sins, this is a this is a big question for me. If you look at the order of sins in the Malbolgias, you're all following me now, right? The level of violence has got those three. We're going to come to those. We're going to finish them up in a minute. After you pass from level seven with the level of violence, we go to eight and nine. Eight and nine um, involve a, a serious drop. The Geryon, this mythical animal, has to fly Dante and Virgil down because the drop is so deep. So we're entering sins of a much graver spiritual nature. They're demonic. That's why the demons, the, the demonic angels, are the guardians down there. And you know that the levels are um, panders, seducers, flatters, um, seminists, soothsayers, bearders, hypocrites, thieves, evil counselors, sowers of discord, false... Those are the ten Malbogias. <clears throat> Here's a question, just a general one before we get there. The third level is the level of seminist. Simony was the abuse of bishops, but largely priests, who sold offices. So they took church offices and sold them, church things. Um, it, it, it led to the um, investiture conflict, which is a major conflict in the Middle Ages. Sometimes political leaders would invest priests and give them property and buy them off, and priests would be bought off and buy other pieces off. So. It's like the church became a trading place. It's, 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 it's what Christ was facing when he went into the, the temple and chased everybody out. He said, you're turning my temple into a marketplace. The seminists are at level three. So in the descent, it's the third from the top. Beretry is at five. It's closer to the bottom. It's a worse sin. Is everybody following me? Simony's at three, Beatrice at five. So Beatrice's closer to the bottom. It's darker. Why would Beatrice be worse than Simony? Because in Simony, you're selling church properties. You're playing around with sacred things. Why did Dante place Beatrice below symmetry? Any thought on that? It's another way of partly asking. Everybody pay attention to the order. Watch the order in which Dante places things. He, he, he does nothing lightly. He knows what he's doing. When you go through the order, just, you know, I, you should have my notes. Just visually look at the notes, the order, and ask yourself, why does each sin have the place that it does in that sequence? 
um, because it'll help you understand the nature of sin. But my question right now is, why is why does Dante look at Beatrice as a greater sin than Simony when Simony's dealing with church matters? Would you remind me of what Beatrice is? Beatrice, it, it's the same sin except in the public order. So that people, imagine people um, embezzling or or what do they call it? You know when guys are scamming people and using their bill, like somebody in a sales when they're selling bank notes or offices or and a huge scam is going on. You guys help me out because this is, you know. Is that what we would call graft? Yeah, right. But you all know these big scandals that go on with these people who, who make millions of dollars using people. So they use their office to con people and cheat them of their money. <clears throat> and these big scams go on that are awful to hear about. Why would he put, why, would he, why does he see um, Beretry as a worse sin than Simony? Okay, first question of the quiz next week. Let's go on. <laughs> okay. No. Is it because uh, this symmetry or what? However you said it uh, is just um, like the priests, those people, but the other one is more involved, like innocent people that that are believing. Um, <clears throat> whatever it is the others are telling them. Are you saying priests are not innocent? <laughs> no, no, I mean the bad ones. But, uh, um, I don't know how to explain it. You know, like they were selling offices or selling things, but it was amongst themselves where the other ones are scamming maybe a larger amount of people and... And those were more in, like innocent. They weren't in on the scam or the Simonists or whatever, however you called them were. Yeah, the Simonists. I, you know, Simonists. I, Tina, I, I, <clears throat> Karen, did you have a, did you have an answer? Is it because the the uh, people that are dealing with the Simonists are know know what they're getting into, but people that are being defrauded by the Baratars are don't have any idea what is going on until it's happened. It's dealing more with the innocent, like Tina was saying. I'm not, I mean, it sounds to me like two, the both of you are saying the same thing a little bit differently. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe that, that the priests weren't innocent, but you, you may be right. I mean, that may be really part of what's going on here. No, it's uh, the people that they're selling to that are not innocent. Right, right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's puzzled me. I, I, I remember... It's been a long time since I've done Dante, and I, I know that this question has troubled me before. It came, I wasn't thinking about it until I came up, um, came on at this reading, and it seems to me I've answered it before, and I don't remember what my answer was. But I think it's along those lines, and I think it's generally more along what um, Tina was saying. It, it still puzzles me. I'm not, I'm not sure of the answer. Um, but it seems to me one of the answers is that what goes on in, in the practice of simony is um, involves a smaller group when you're involved in um, bear tree you're you're involving far more numbers of people and taking advantage of their innocence so the corruption is far more widespread 
Um, its corrupting influence is greater. Um, I'm not sure of that, but th that's one of the things that comes to my mind. But it's interesting to me that Dante puts Simony, Simony closer to the top and Beartree towards the bottom. What, what I'd like to ask you all to do is take a look at that list and see what you think about it. You know, for example, that, um, <clears throat> that Dante puts, he puts thievery, stealing over hypocrisy. That's another puzzling. I don't want to do this right now, but take a look at the order. We'll pick this up next week. Why does he put why does he put the thieves lower, closer to a darker sin than hypocrites? Because hypocrisy to me is one of the worst sins possible. Anyway, take a look at the order. What is Dante doing in placing those sins as he does? What's he showing us about the nature of those sins, okay? Could, um, could it be um, that for, for those sins when it's uh, at the smaller, like the, fa the factor of like necessity? So maybe like thieves could, um, they could be in a dire need for something, but hypocrisy, there is like never a need to be like um and then yeah so like a smaller scale it could be out of, of a need i don't know no no but maria i'm so justification yeah no no here stay there but the point here is that that thievery here is a worse sin not so even if i mean if oh. If you're saying there's a necessity, because you might be right that people sometimes steal out of necessity, you'd think that that would be a lesser sin. But here, it it's after hypocrisy. It's low, It's a worse sin. Oh, worse. Okay, so the ones that are higher up are, are less. Yeah. Do you guys all have the study guide? Do you all have the order? Do you have a page? Because if you're not, I'll send you a page um, so you can see the order. It's good to visually have it in front of you. Okay. I don't have it. If you could send it, that'd be great. Who's, who am I talking? Who's that? Who just said that? <laughs> this is Michelle. Michelle, okay. I'll do it. I'm trying to find it. I can't, I can't find it. Do you, do you have the study guide? No. I'll send it to you. His last email, he told us which one to get. What, what page? I don't have the study guide in front of me. I don't know. It's page 14 of the study guide. Here, let's go on. I, I want to go on. You guys look at the study guide, but right now I really want to I want to be careful of our time because we're um, we don't have much time. Turn to page 72 or 70, 74. <clears throat> Remember we we left off at the Pierre de Vanya who was in the Wood of Suicides who was um, one with the foliage. He gave away his body. He took away his body, so he becomes one with the body of the plants. He speaks from out of the bush. And just after Dante speaks to him, remember um, Pierre de Vanya said that he was um, overtaken by envy, that the envy of the court, everybody turned against him, so he took his life in despair. As soon as Dante leaves him, he, he sees the profligates, those who wasted their lives. So they belong in the same circle as Pierre de Vanya on page 72. It describes all these profligates as like dogs 
bitches um, tearing into each other at the top of page 72. Behind these two, the woods was overrun by pack of black bitches, ravenous and ready, and like hunting dogs just broken from their chains. They sank their fangs into the poor wretch who hid. They ripped him open piece by piece and then ran off with mouthfuls of his wretched limbs. So once again, bodies are being dismembered because the souls themselves had taken their lives. Um, at the bottom of the page, the, this is the, the passage I wanted to get us to. Thanks, Doc. Can you put it there? Um, yeah. At the bottom of 72, O souls who have just come in time to see this unjust mutilation that has separated me from all my leaves. The souls are feeling sorry for themselves. They're suffering this pain constantly. Gather them round the foot of this sad bush. I was from the city that took the Baptist in exchange for her first patron, that was Mars, who for this swears by his art, she, Florence, will have an endless sorrow. And were it not that on the Arno's bridge some vestige of his image still remains. So the, the image printed on the coin until modern times was Mars. There was a sense that there was a war going on. It was printed on a coin. But the Baptist, John the Baptist image was putting on coins. That's the current coin. It's a little bit like Lincoln on the $1 bill. Some vestige of his image still remains. Those citizens who built anew the city on the ashes that Attila, who is the conqueror, a warrior, left behind, would have accomplished such a task in vain. I turned my home into my hanging place. When the city became a commercial regime, it corrupted itself. It lost some of the more, in Dante's mind, some of the more masculine virtues that are needed to keep a city healthy. It's just the first warning we have of lots of these warnings of this new kind of city that's, that is encourages people to be soft and comfortable and less and less capable of doing hard things. Um, going over to 79... This is the, so we've been in the level of the violent. Those violent against others, it's the river of blood. Those violent against themselves, the wood of the suicides. And now we're coming to the burning sands. The flaming city, the burning sands. It's called um, the sterile city. So it's another image of the sterility of the city, the burning sands. Nothing fecund, nothing can grow there. And he meets... He meets his old teacher, Brunetto, who's among the sodomites, the homosexuals. Page 80, the middle of the page. Is this really you here, Sir Brunetto? And he, oh my son, may it not displease you if Bruno um, Latini lets his troop file on while he walks at your side for a while? What's really interesting is one of the criticisms of Dante is that he put all of his enemies in, in hell, that he just had this animus against people. This is not an enemy. He, he couldn't be more humble or more respectful of a soul than he is here of his old teacher. He has nothing but respect for this man. And everything that they say to each other expresses that mutual respect for each other. My son, he said, a member of this herd who stops one moment lies 100 years unable to brush off the wounding flames. So move on. I shall follow. So he says, 
I can't stop it, let me go on, and Dante willingly follows him. The top of 81, he said to me, follow your constellation and you cannot fail to reach your point of glory. Not if I saw clearly in the happy life, and if I had not died just when I did, I would have cheered you on in all your work. His teacher saw all this promise. So there's nothing but fondness in this exchange. Page 82. If all I wish for had been granted, I answered him, you certainly would not, not yet be banished from our life on earth. My mind is etched with your kind image, loving and paternal. When living in the world, hour after hour, you taught me how a man makes himself eternal. So one of the ironies, Brunetto was apparently teaching him about the immortality of the soul, what, make, what makes him, what makes the soul eternal, and he himself is in hell. And while I live, my tongue shall always speak of my debt to you and of my gratitude. I will write down what you tell me of my future and save it with another text to show a lady who I can interpret if I can reach her. This much at least let me make clear to you, if my conscience continues not to blame me, I am ready for whatever fortune wants. Brunetta will give him um, a fortune again, but there's this exchange of this fondness between the two of them. Dante doesn't weep, he doesn't fall in pity, but he's showing the respect that he had for this man in the afterlife. It's as if he carries something of the Christian respect he's supposed to have for whatever goodness still is present in a damned soul. But here's the, here's the passage I want to get to. When we get to the purgatorio, Dante's going to make it clear homosexuality, sodomy, is not in itself damnable. This has got to be clear. Homosexuality is not damnable. It's a sin. The last level of purgatory before Dante returns to the height will be the level of lustful. And included in the lustful will be homosexuals. They're there. The difference is they want mercy and they're answering their sin. Here, they're denying it. And Bruno Bruno's one of them. But here's this image I want to leave you with because it, it's, always, it's always had a strong effect on me. I would say more about my walk and conversation with you cannot go on. This is page 83 at the end of the canto. For over there I see a new smoke rising from the sand. People approach with whom I must not mingle. Remember my tracer where I live on. This is the only thing I ask of you. Then he turned back. He seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across its field to win the green cloth prize. And he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. And there again, here we are with this Tina with the literal level, you know, and the allegorical, the tropological, the anagogical. What does this sentence mean? Dante's describing Bonetto run back to, to merge in with his group again, but he described him in terms of a race, who, those people who run a race, right, those who run Verona's race across its field to win the green cloth prize, and he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. T.S. Eliot commented on that line once in an essay, and I remember because he focused on it. He, didn't, he said it's always puzzled him. And I would look, I went back and looked at it myself to see if I could understand. I think I do. 
Um, but what's your thought? What do you guys think? What's Dante showing us in that line? Um, to me, it sounds like his um, teacher understood why he was there, but it was he didn't recognize his sin. He wanted to be with the crowd. He, I mean, it was important for him to catch up and be the leader of it no matter what. And the sin was more important than anything else. Anybody want to add anything to that? I thought it was just a higher regard for uh, for him. For what? And for um, what's his name again? Brunetto. Yeah, this uh, Dante obviously has this affection for him, this admiration for him, and I thought maybe this was just how he saw him as of this group. I think it's closer to what Melody, this is a chilling statement to me. It's one of the most chilling, for me at least, in the Divine Comedy because it's so innocent. He goes off as if he's the winner of the group, not the last one in. I mean, he doesn't seem good to Melody's but He doesn't seem to see the full implication. I imagine this sometimes. You know, um, when I, for, for example, sometimes when I'm driving, I tend to press in my driving I'd want to go there and get back and I mean it's just a quality that's not been a good quality but it's sometimes this line strikes me because I think of us doing what we do in life like we want to get ahead we're going someplace if that's what we carry into the next life if let's say we're frozen in that moment you know it's as if we're doing everything to get ahead we're doing what and that's what we carry in that's what we choose that's what we'll be so Dante's describing him as if he's the winner of the group, not the last winner, as if he has no sense that he's lost anything. Sometimes it seems to me that's one of the most frightening things about hell, that we make these choices because they're so important to us, um, and it catches us. If that's the way we enter the next life, we don't even see what we've lost. And Brunetto seems to be like that. Remember, the, the people in hell have lost the good of the intellect. They don't see that they don't see. They don't understand that they don't understand. This is the last level of the violent. Violent against neighbors, violent against self, violence against nature and God. Here is included the sodomist. They're there in this barren desert. But just before they go down, Dante comes across these three men on page 91 and they're all like Brunetto. Brunetto is very polished, articulate, he's educated, he's mannered, he's respected. All of these men are Florentine nobles. They're educated, they're well respected, they have an established place in their community, and here they are in hell. Okay, on page 91, about line 54, this is Canto 17. I carefully examined several faces among this group caught in the raining flames, and did not know a soul, but I observed that around each sinner's neck a pouch was hung, each of a different color. So he could not identify, he could not identify the individual person. What he identified was an external emblem. 
of that person. That around each sinner's neck a pouch was hung, each of a different color, and with a coat of arms. Fixed on these, they seemed to feast their eyes. They're not looking at each other, they're looking at their coat of arms. This emblem that identifies who they are. While I looked around among the crowd, I saw something in blue on a yellow purse that had the face and bearing of a lion. While my eyes continued their inspection, I saw another purse as red as blood, exhibiting a goose more white than butter. And one who had a blue sow, pregnant-looking, stamped on the whiteness of his money bag, asked me, What are you doing? Okay. What's going on here? So he just left the level of the sodomists, and now he's dealing with the usurists. They're the ones who use money to make money. So why are these two groups gathered together here at this point? Go back for a moment, 84 and 85, on the level of the sodomites, if you would, for a second. When he went to the level, when he just met the sodomites, Bruno and the other men there, on page 84 at the bottom, he says, he's, he's describing the group as they appear. When we stopped, they resumed their normal pace, and when they reached us, then they started circling the three together, formed a turning wheel. So the sodomists are turning while they're moving along. Just like professional wrestlers stripped and oiled, eyeing one another for the first best grip before the actual blows and thrusts begin. So these are the sodomists circling, eyeing each other as if they're going to do something with each other. At the bottom, we meet um, Jacopo. He says at the bottom of 85, And I who share the post of pain with them was Jacopo Rustucci, and for sure, my reluctant wife first drove me to my sin. It's because his wife didn't give him the sex that he wanted to. He turned elsewhere. So we've got these men circling the sodomites. And then when he gets to the usurers, he's got these men sitting there looking at each other with these pouches on them. He can't identify them, um, but... Um, and what they look at is not themselves, but these emblems. So, what's Dante showing in these two groups? Why are they Why are they grouped together in this last circle of the level of the violent? What can we say about the sodomites? What's What do we learn about them, and what do we learn about the users? I believe the sodomites are looking at each other, um, um, sizing each other up um, based on their physical appearance, where the users are sizing each other up based on the, the amount of money they have in their money bags, their whatever they're called, their pouches. Yeah. So they're, the only thing that they're worried about is how much money the, the other person has. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that this was the group that was like, hey, where, where are my friends? Bring them down to like the other people that they had lived with. But instead of wishing that people wouldn't come to hell, they were 
you know, want to see where their friends were because it was time for them to come to hell too. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Really, that's, I thought that was a sad part. Yeah. That's good. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Well, in both cases, the sodomites and the usurers, they are taking they're taking a, a command of God. In, in one case, the sexuality is to be fruitful. In the other case, we were commanded in the garden to use our labor to create uh, to be fruitful. Yeah. And the usurers, instead of being fruitful by their labor, they take wealth and make that a, a, a perverted fruitfulness of multiplicity. <laughs> yes. Can anybody say that a little bit? Mike, can you say that again and try to clear it up again? Yeah. You've got, you got it. Go explaining usury in a way it, it's almost you know you t they're taking what sh what should be fruitful labor they're taking the, the the fruitfulness of labor out of their life and they're substituting just uh, uh, a multiplication of wealth yeah they're making money breed they're making money breed which isn't life um, they're making something inanimate that's lifeless breed the sodomites are doing the opposite. They're taking from, they're taking their nature um, and making it sterile um, instead of multiplying. And the users are taking something from nature and um, turning it into something that multiplies in a sterile way. I mean, it's making money breed. So, did, did you want to say something, Doc? Just that. What? It's making money breed. What's the other? Whatever. The sodomites? Yeah. As you said it, they're making themselves sterile. There's yeah, no that's why the sand, the burning sand, is such a compelling, in, um, you know, image for the sodomites. It's sterile. There can be nothing productive there. And the interesting thing about the users is that um, they identify themselves with something extraneous. It's like they lose themselves instead of becoming more of a person. Something extraneous to themselves takes over their place. So everywhere we're looking, we're seeing the effects of human actions, what, what these instincts deep within the human soul actually um, do to us, their effects. Okay, let me stop just for a minute. We're going to enter Circle 8, the, Mal the Ten Malbogias. Dante and Virgil are going to get on Garion, this other mythical animal. We're going to leave the world of incontinence and violence, all the, all the um, sort of human appetites. And now we're going to enter something spiritually deeper. The guardians will be angels, demons. We're entering into the darkest sins in man. Garion, as you know, is this mythical monster. He has a good-looking face. He's very handsome. He's very good-looking. But he has the, bottle of a, the body of a reptile and a tail. So he, he presents himself as this good human, but underneath he is a reptile, evil. And you remember the image of the reptile in, in the Garden of Eden? I mean, Satan was image as a reptile. Um, so we're looking at the worst sins, those sins of the intellect. 
Um, those are what we're going to take up now. But before we leave the incontinent in the violence, any any questions or comments? This might be um, a silly question, but flatterers, can you give me an example? I mean, I know what flattery is, <laughs> but why are flatter flattery a part of um, that circle of hell? Let me, let's, I'm glad, because let's go, because we're going to go there. But give me one second. Anybody else? Before Connie, Connie, there are no there there are no silly questions. You've never had one, you never will, <laughs> and it could be the most. Uh, there are no there are no bad questions. God, All right. when we wonder something, there's something good in us going on. Hold on to it because we're. I want to get there before we leave tonight. I wanted to touch on the first two, um, first two Malbogias. Any any questions or comments about the first two levels? These are the levels of the leopard and the lion. So remember, Dante had to go up that mountain. He got bat beaten back by two of the beasts. He's now learned to see two of those beasts. So allegorically, we've seen the beast in man. Now we're going to look at the she-wolf. Something vicious and cunning. Very vicious and cunning. Can I add something really sure, quick? Sure, sure. Um, when Connie talked about if, if this is a real vision of hell, which I thought was a great question, because I feel like it is, just because it's so scary. But I remember the uh, parable in the Bible of um, the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man um, basically ignored Lazarus, the poor man, and then when he died, he went to hell. Lazarus was in heaven. And... Um, the rich man asked if Lazarus could come and touch his tongue with water. And then he said, would you please go tell my brothers to, to change their ways? So I thought that was interesting. In here, it seems like nobody in hell gives a damn. <laughs> 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 but um, but um, yeah. in that parable, I don't know, it seemed like he showed... You know, they they were showing sympathy. He at least had sympathy for people that he didn't want them to become that way. I guess I keep getting hooked on that idea, and I guess maybe it was just Jesus's way of trying to show us before we get there to have sympathy for people and not let them turn down the wrong path. But I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, so. no, it really is a good. I'm glad it's it's really good. If I remember, doesn't. Correct me here, Melody. If I, I want to be. I want to get to these last two things quickly. So, and I'm still trying to hold myself to time. But doesn't Christ follow that up by saying, um, "You didn't listen to all the others. What makes right. you think you?" He says, "If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even though one rises from the dead." Right. So. Right. Yeah. So he's, I know he's making a point, that's what the parable is about, but I just thought that was interesting to me. In hell, you kind of felt badly that you hadn't changed your ways. That's what my vision was before I started reading this, and now I'm understanding that they they don't understand. Yeah. It's, part of, I mean, I just don't think we should lose that part of Christ's response where he said, you didn't listen to Moses and the prophet. The other, the other, I just, this is not the time, but gone. The other aspect of that parable, which is so powerful to me, is in part he's saying, 
you didn't listen to them. Um, and we've heard all the parables about the stewards and you know those who were sent. And finally they didn't listen to anyone and they sent the son and killed him. So over and over again he keeps reinforcing this sense of how obdurate people are that they refuse to hear. The, the, one of the interesting things that I take away from all of that is, is not only that people are obdurate, but that Christ came not to do what the other prophets did, Moses and the prophets. He came to offer his life to help them see something that the other prophets couldn't show them or do for them. So there's that dual aspect that there's this awful obdurateness in people. They don't listen. Um, and, and, and yet he knew that and the cost of trying to answer even that sin was going to a cross. So let me leave that because I'm, I'm glad you, I'm, I, that's, I mean, you, you're touching on a really tough parable, but if, if everybody could keep this in mind, I want to I leave, I want to get us into the fraud simple. Remember, eight, the eighth circle is fraud simple. It's not fraud complex. It doesn't deal with um, betrayals of intimate trust. It's a betrayal of a general impersonal trust. So it's larger, broader. And what we, what we meet in the first circle are the, um, the, the, um, the panders and seducers going in an opposite direction because they're both dealing with the same thing. They're playing to people's appetites. The only one I want to mention on page 97 is Jason, and it's really interesting because Jason's one of the heroes of the ancient world. And he pandered in a number of ways. He, 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 um, he seduced three women, married women, but he also pandered to other people's desires. So it wasn't just sexual. He could use other people's desires to get them to do what he wanted for himself. So in the very first circle, we're getting panders and seducers who are really mere images playing on people's passions um, and using them for themselves. I want to get to Connie's question because in the very next um, circle, he meets with the flatters. These are people who flatter others for themselves on page 99. And this is what I wanted to get to, to close tonight, because I really wanted to close on a very positive note here. So I want everybody to pay attention to this positive note. So they're looking down from the first Malboge into the second, and this is what Dante describes. Now we could hear the shades in the next pouch whimpering and making snorting, grunting sounds, and sounds of blows slapping with open palms. From a steaming stench below, the banks were coated with a slimy mold it stuck to them like glue, disgusting to behold and worse to smell. The bottom was so hallowed out of sight, we saw it only when we climbed the arch and looked down from the bridge's highest point. So they're still above it, you know, over this bridge, looking into the trench. There we were, and from where I stood, I saw souls in the ditch plunged into excrement that might well have been flushed from our latrines. My eyes were searching hard among the bottom, and I saw somebody's head so smirched with shit, you could not tell me you were priest or layman. <laughs> just remember, Pope, Pope Francis wanted us to read this. So just um, He shouted up, Why do you feast your eyes on me more than other dirty beasts? And I replied, Because remembering well. So imagine the smell. Imagine what your eyes are seeing. 
And this is the flattery. So my, my question is going to be, what's the contrapasso? What is it showing about the sin? I've seen you in your hair dry once or twice. You are Alessio Intermini from Lucha. That's why I stare at you more than the rest. He beat his slimy forehead as he answered, I'm stuck down here by all these flatterers that roll un- unceasing off my tongue up here. He can't stop. He finished speaking and my guide began, lean out a little more, look harder down there so you can get a look at the face of that repulsive and disheveled tramp scratching herself with shitty fingernails, spreading her legs while squatting up and down. It is Thias, the whore who gave the answer to her lover when he asked, am I very worthy of your thanks? So the man she's been serving says, am I really worthy? She says, very, nay, incredible, so not just a little, you're a lot. I think our eyes have had their fill of the, that's enough, and they go on. So on this positive note, I wanted to leave. Okay, she's not there for prostitution. What's the sin of flattery to go, isn't that your question? What's the sin of flattery here, and why the contrapasso? I mean, it's one of the, by the way, those of you who have read it already know, it's going to get fouler and fouler and fouler as we go on. This is pretty foul. What's the contrapasso showing us about flattery? Why, and why, by the way, this is towards the top. We're a long way from the bottom. But why is flattery here? And it's not among the incontinent or the violent. That's Connie's question. It's a good question. She's not here for prostitution, I don't think. She's there for flattery. What is flattery? It's fraud. Sorry? It's fraud. Say it louder, Doctor. It's fraud. It's not true. You're saying something to make people like you, to make them do something you want them to do, whatever. You're saying something that isn't true. Why isn't it among the incontinent or the violent? And why the contrapasso, excrement, shit in the fingernails, um, just it's all. It's a lie that caters to another person's pride. What does that do to each of the people? Well, let me be blunt. It turns them into shit. I mean, that's what Dante's showing us. Isn't it? I mean, it turns you into the worst part of yourself. It's so degrading to, to use another person for yourself, to, to flatter his pride, to say what he wants, to make him something, is to turn him into something he's not. It's inhuman. It seems... And by the way, it's towards the top. All of the ones at the top, um, the... Um, the the panders and seducers panders and seducers play to people's emotions they play on them, they use them for themselves that's already a sin in itself because it's degrading you're using somebody for yourself flattery's worse because you're um, I think Mike touched on it I mean you're, you're appealing more directly to to somebody's pride, something that they need or want that's not just sexual. 
you know, seducers and panders are playing to appetites, you're still turning them into something they're not. But flattery involves the intellect more directly in the sin that you commit and the sin you're playing to. I think it's a little bit along the lines of what Mike's saying. Is that clear? Connie, so is, is it, it, sorry, is it go, saying that both the flatterer and the person being flattered who accepts it as gospel truth, they both end up there together? I we don't I don't know that, but you know I, we don't know what happened to the guy she's okay. serving here. But for me to put them together like that shows that they share in this degradation. I mean, the guy's there for reasons he shouldn't be, and they're both you know. Here, I mean, just let me. I mean, I I wanted to end here just because we're you know we're out of time, but. It's in, for me, it's a, it's a good point to end because we've entered fraud, the world of fraud. Remember that we've, we've gone from the incontinent to the aggressive, the violent, to the more intellectual sins and the more subtle sins. You know, remember Dante's trying to climb this mountain on his own and he can't do it by himself. He cannot. He's got to see some things. And, and by the way, those of you, I mean, I, I should have thought of this at the beginning. You all know from um, um, you all know from um, the church services this weekend, and I think through the week we've entered ordinary time. We were in Christmas time; it was Advent. We just left Advent or, and, or, and entered ordinary time. The opening lines of ordinary time are repent, repent, and believe in the gospel. That's the opening cry of Christ in the beginning. What, what begins his mission is repent. How can you repent if you don't know what to repent for? What do you do? What do you do? I mean, we, we can go through our life, you know, answering the small things in us. And what Dante's helping us to see is that there's more there than we see. I'm really, I'm saying this very, very seriously to everybody because so many of you have been really honest about your response to this, I, and I think it's a little bit frightening, but don't forget what I said. It's comic. Dante's bringing a light. That light is a grace to us. If we don't see it as a grace, I don't think we're seeing it right. The, the, the people in hell can't see it. That's the whole point. We can. It helps, it helps us look at our sins. It's going to be painful because we have more to pick up, if anybody takes it seriously. But we couldn't, we couldn't do that if we didn't know God was with us asking it. Where did it come from? You know, we didn't make this stuff up. Our sins are our sins. There's a great, great help being given. So while we watch Dante go through this, remember that in some ways, his presence is helping us to distance ourselves from them by looking at them to seeing how awful they are and never forget that he's there by a grace. We wouldn't be here doing this um, if we uh, if we didn't have help. So, um, who who was it? Was it somebody here today or somebody yesterday? I think was it yesterday that who was it that said something about evil and grace? Tina, do you or I mean Julie, do you remember? Yeah, was that you? What say it? Can you? Your audio's not on. Can't hear you. Yeah, I don't remember what I said, but it was me. I don't. I just remember saying, 
<laughs> it was one of those memorable passages that you know that's an antidote that we we can't ever become the good we are without learning to see the evil, something like that. You know that. Mm. Um, so, however dark this gets, if 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 we're not laughing at it in some ways, I don't think we're reading it well. The church says, "Always be grateful. Always be glad." Christ is giving us a help. The, 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 I mean, just imagine if every one of the sins we all had, as dark as they are, and I'm speaking for myself, not you guys, as dark as they are, if we can imagine them being transformed, they, they can only be transformed as something greater, a greater glory. Look at Paul. He was killing Christians and became probably one of the greatest lights of the church. So... This isn't just for us to be smart or well-read. <laughs> Something else is going on here. So, Anyway, let's leave it here. Um, we've entered fraud. These are the subtleties of the mind. And remember, um, I, think, I think we can probably finish the, the Inferno next week. The week after we enter purgatory. And rebirth and renewal. Um... It's it's a it's looking at the same sins, but a whole different way of approaching them. So keep that in mind. Okay, um, it's good to see you guys always again. It's always good to see you. I'm just genuinely glad. Um, if you would keep us in your prayers and all of us keep each other in our prayers, um, you guys be good and stay safe. Okay. Finish the inferno. Thank you. Finish the inferno. We'll try to finish it next week, okay? Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Bye. I gotta look here. I don't know if this is. Oh, Maria sent this. I'm not going to read it now, but I, I got this note in the middle of the... Um, here, hold on, see if I can pull it up. Um, wait, where am I going? What am I doing? Hmm. Um, no, what am I doing? <laughs>